Richard. I'm one of the uh, elders here at Ecclesia. It's my privilege, again, to uh, take us through our series in Nehemiah, um, The Unchanging God in, in Changing Times. And um, again, we're in chapter 10 today. Um, today, I'm going to read the text. I think that time will allow, hopefully, and then um, hopefully dig into what I believe the Lord is going to say to us through these things. So let me read and I will pray and then um, let's see what the Lord will say. So I'm going to read from the ESV, but please follow in whatever translations you have. On the seals, actually let's backtrack a little bit, just, um, just because we, we need that back up. Verse 38 in chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our, prince, our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hilkiah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malachijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malush, Harim, Merimoth, Abadiah, Daniel, Ginephon, Baruch, Meshalom, Abijah, Mijamin, Messiah, Bilgaya, Shemaiah. These are the priests and the Levites. Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binuai, of the sons of Hedendad, Kedemiel, and, of, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Palitha, Hanan, Mikah, Rehob, Hashbiah, Zakur, Jerubiah, Shebaniah, Hobiah, Hodiah, sorry, Benai, Benu, the chiefs of the people, Parush, Pahath, Moab, of Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Zag, Bidiah, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, after Hezekiah, Azur, Hadiah, Hasham, Beziah, Harif, Harifia, Anoth, Nibiah, Magpish, Mishalem, Hezir, Mishzaibil, Zadok, Jediah, Palathiah, Hananiah, Ananiah, Hoshiah, Hananiah, Hashub, Halishib, Halohesh, Pilah, Shobek, Reham, Hashbanah, Messiah, Ahiah, Hananan, Anan, Malush, Harim, Banath. Again. Feels like year two Hebrew all over again. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our, the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on a Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. 
and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction the exaction of every debt we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the Lord our God and for the showbread the regular grain offering the regular burnt offering and the Sabbaths the new moon and the appointed feasts the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests and to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor and the priest the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouses for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. It's a real word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for um, our ability to gather, howbeit digitally, Lord, yet nonetheless, Father, you have provided the means in which, you know, your word can go forth, fellowship can go forth, your worship can go forth, Lord, and we are so thankful for this opportunity. Lord, help us now as we look at this text, as we're trying to, again, um, come to terms there, Lord Father, of what it is that you, the unchanging God, um, who, will, who relate to us in changing times, dear Lord God, would look to us to, as it were, create stability between us and you, Lord. To, to, to some extent, the, the, the changing of the world means little, dear Lord Father, to the fact that you still require us to be the people who you've called us to be. And Lord, help us to figure out how we do that, Lord, as, we, as, we, as indeed we are going through changing times and, as it were, endeavoring to create stability. So, Lord, teach us today, Father, from your word, and again, help us to come to terms, dear Lord, for what it is you want to speak, Lord Father, into your body at this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. In so many ways, I think today is such an important um, part of what, um, I guess, I, when I looked about teaching Nehemiah um, for this particular segment of, of our lives and our development as a church, and obviously in relation to our current climate as well, I think today is incredibly important. And um, I don't say that lightly, and I know that all the word of God is important, but I think there is something specifically for us in which we really need to consider and think about. 
So I've entitled this somewhat, initially I, I, I entitled it Meaningful Membership, but again, in relation to what we are dealing with, it's the covenant communities and meaningful membership. And it's something I know that has been on our hearts as, as, as elders to, to kind of go through. And I think here we have an opportunity in our text today to really explore this as a theme. So, by way of introduction, how conscious are you of what you put your name to? I believe that we as a culture are becoming more commitment adverse. This doesn't necessarily mean that we do not believe commitments are important. Often, we have busy lives that demand we tread cautiously before adding anything new into that already chaotic mix of responsibilities. However, that, what about our commitments to living holy lives? Is that something we can afford to place on the back burner? Or does it require urgent implementation into our daily routine? And I think that's the heart of what we're doing here, is that can we afford to put on the back burner those issues that really are, that, do, that require our commitments, require us to put our names, as it were, on that seal? So let's look at our context of where we are within, the context, within our word in, Je in Nehemiah 10. It says an overview of where we are now with Israel. The temple has been built. The wall has been built. And now the first official residents of Jerusalem are about to repopulate the city. The only thing left to be determined is signing the agreement with the landlord. For those who are familiar with the cyclical arc of the biblical narrative, we will recognize that we are now in the new creation point of a new cycle. The universe has been created. The garden has been set apart, or the temple of God has been set apart. The people of God have been placed into the garden. The rules have been given. Now is that a serpent I see next to that tree? I want to deal with this, our text, um, and I want to spend pretty much more time in application as, again, I think Nehemiah lends itself well to application. But let me kind of briefly go through the three sections of the text. So one to seven is all the names, as, as we gather from, from verse um, 38 in chapter 9, that these were the names that were signed to the covenant as a, as a part of that confession and, 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 and the people as as, as Brother B was going through with us last week, that confession of sin, and that everyone felt compelled that they needed to do something in light of reading the law, reading the Torah, having gone through this time of prayer, again, like very much like we have been through a time of prayer, people bringing up their sins and realizing the errors of their ways, and now they're signing a document. As I said, how quick are we to sign something that can have severe consequences down the line? Well, it might depend on what you're getting up front, right? Getting your new iPhone may make you your thoughts foggy over the £85 per month you'll have to pay for the next two years. Well, I'm getting this right now, isn't it? So 
you know, I, I, the 85 pounds seems to kind of blur into the background. You know, but these names, the leading families, the heads of the priests, the heads of the Levites, the heads of the princes, as it were, the elders of Israel, represent the whole of their family. So in, else, in that sense, these few names, as long as it might seem right now, really represent a, all the people. Like you might sign for, I don't know, like your child's Oyster card. I mean, the reality is, is that there are that practice of signing your family for the whole is, is still very similar, similarly practiced today. And this is what's happening, is that these few names we are reading represented all the people that were gathered there at that time. So moving on to 28 to 31, swearing the oath. There is no mistaking that in the ancient, the ancient Near East was filled with oath-making cultures. In comparison to our current society, there are relatively few times we are called upon to make an oath. Giving evidence in court, pledging allegiance as a new citizen, starting the, a career in the armed forces, police force, or as a medical professional. As listed, there are still a few times in which we are called upon to make an oath, but it is also easy to see from this list how it is possible for someone to go through pretty much all of their life without having ever made an oath. Marriage vows are probably the one time we are most likely to make anything like an oath, but even then it can be treated as a superficial promise. But obviously this is not so for all. It is hard to sell commitment to a culture such as our own when, it, when its view of commitment is skewed. Being true to yourself is in many instances the highest commitment one can make. Therefore, it can be difficult to convince someone to stay committed to something that they no longer believe serves their best interest. For this reason, it is difficult to see how a person today will wish themselves cursed if they fail to keep up their end of the bargain. However, we are not being spared the obligation of making oaths by Jesus. As Matthew 5.32, but we will look about, well, do the believers really have um, a pass from making oaths? As Matthew 5.32 points out. But we'll look at this a little bit later in our application. The next section, 32 to 39, is, again, is a threefold commitment. There were three particular areas that they were looking, not what they were making a commitment to. So, again, this was all in relation to the Torah, to what they had read back in chapter 8 not to intermarry with the people of the land whom God had forbidden them to. Well, why? Well, because they were under the ban. And you look back into Joshua, you can't marry people who God has sentenced to death. And very much like our own situation, I know, again, this might be come across as harsh, but the reality is it's true, is that, we are also under the ban from marrying people that are under the wrath of God. 
If the wrath of God abides on people, we cannot marry them. The next was to keep the Sabbath holy. And this was not just merely the Sabbath as in the seventh day of, um, the, seventh day of the week, but also the sabbatical year and all that entailed with not plowing, not um, planting crops in the land and also letting people go free, the release of debts. The third aspect was to provide for the upkeep of the temple, the one third of a shekel, and also to provide for the Levites and the priests living so that they are able to wholly commit to the ministry of the temple and the people. Even the priests, the Levites, the lay ministers committed themselves along with the people to taking turns in providing the wood for the altar. So even that aspect of providing for the, for the burnt offerings, even the priests and the Levites committed from their own resources to that. The issue of tithes is often overshadowed or obscured. The issue of believers giving. Are offerings and tithing obligatory or discretionary? Now I believe that this becomes an issue of the spirit of the letter versus the law of the letter. The letter of the law, so to speak. The spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And so often we try to argue the fact that our exemption from the letter of the law somehow gives us a freedom and a pass over the spirit of the law. I believe the arguments about whether tithes are still part of the law which govern us as New Testament believers often fails to acknowledge the tithe as a practical part of spiritual living. The ceremonial aspect of tithes may seem redundant to many, but as we see from our text today, the tithe was intended for the practical support of the priests and the upkeep of the temple. Even the pagan priests lived from the gifts devoted to their gods. Corinthian tells us about the meat being sold in the market, right? That was their way of gaining their money from the people and the upkeep of the temple. However, the ceremonial aspect of tithing also serves as part of our own devotional worship. I can cheaply sing of Christ's lordship over my life, but how do I display that objectively? So even my tithes and offering become tokens of my worship life. The question of whether I tithe can be better posed as how much do I value the ministry of the church? If I choose to give it minimal or no value, then each person must take responsibility for making that decision before God. So before we jump into application, let's recapture the current arc of the story. So chapter 8 and 9 now culminates into chapter 10. So these are all to be seen as a whole. It's a movement of the story that we can't look out separately. Chapter 8, reading the law, the Torah, Ezra comes and, and all the Levites, if you remember, were, were there amongst the people, interpreting for them, letting them, you know, like the little breakout groups, the home groups were, were there. So it was just not enough to read the Torah and, and have people assume that they knew what was going on. There was the Levites amongst them, teaching them 
the word of God. As a part of reading this Torah and understanding it, having it broken down for them, it led into chapter 9 where they confessed their sins. Wow, look at me, I'm unfaithful. Look at what I've done before the Lord. And it caused them to be incredibly sorrowful for what had happened. Then chapter 10, where we are today, it says, now it leads to them making an oath. It was not enough to just sit there and, and say, you know what, I, I, I've had a great time. And again, it's, sometimes we have to think about what happens after we've prayed. Because I think we have something here that is somewhat of a model of, right, we've prayed, what do we do now? What am I, how, what, how do we practically look into this? Let's, I guess, we fall prey to what James says where we're just saying, you know, um, I pray for you, brother, see you later. How can we actually now make a commitment so that, what we have done and what we have witnessed doesn't happen again. The primacy of the word of God was such that it motivated people to acknowledge their sins, but also take action to make sure that this does not happen again. No matter how, how fruitless you might think that is, there is still something about the nobility of wanting to try and stop the cycles of sin in our lives. So having gone through the crisis of the exile, and this is what they've gone through. It wasn't for nothing. It wasn't for naught. They had gone through the exile. It was now worth contemplating what had gone wrong. And then creating a plan that will help inform and navigate their lives now and for the future. So now we must consider how this informs us today. Forms of application. How do I live this out? This part, I, I guess, is a, we're going to spend a bit more time on. Firstly... I just want to make an important note for those who like to squirm our way from applying lessons to ourselves. And this is kind of, I guess you might say, my disclaimer. There is a danger that we, as it were, shift in that tension between individuality and community. And let me explain it in these words, where we, we tend to go to the weak side of the tension wherever it seems to suit our own particular application or our own particular mindset so you know it's something that as it were corporately we all have a responsibility to do all of a sudden it doesn't get done it's very easy to say well I'm just one of many well I, I, what, what is it to you know I'm not the only one so it's very easy then to kind of like say well when something doesn't get done to then Go to that side which basically says, well, I've got anonymity in the fact that I'm just one, among, one amongst many. Nothing to do with me, really. And then you lose that individual responsibility to the corporate body. 
And there's also those other aspects where we squirm to the individual side. So when something goes wrong in the body, so to speak, and there is a, as it were, an issue that arises, we then jump into our individuality and say, well, they don't really represent me. I, I, all of a sudden now, I'm, I'm not really, you know, because, again, that's them. And, and then again, you, you miss this whole idea of the corporate nature of sin. Their failure is my failure. And there is no aspect of, you know, when someone cries, I cry with them. When they laugh, I laugh with them. So there is no point in living to yourself as though the downfall of others will not affect you too. When Jerusalem fell, all were exiled. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The righteous and the unrighteous. So it does appear that I am indeed my brother's keeper. So this is the issue we are seeing today in our text. That corporate responsibility, but the individuals who have laid their claim to being responsible for it. So what's the gospel have to say about this? Well, the good news is not just about how I am saved, but what I am saved for. The gospel has a role in regulating our lives together as believers. Here is Israel. After more than a century of living in the land, the temple has been built and not looking as fabulous as Solomon's. However, it is no less the place which God has provided for his presence amongst his people. The wall has now been built under Nehemiah's supervision as governor of Judea. The people are now ready to move into the city and rebuild homes and settle in. The one thing that now remains is how do we now live in this city prepared by God in a way that honors him? And that's where we are in that gospel issue. It's not about, well, has God saved me? Has God put me in his place? Now how do I live? And how do I live? more importantly, with all those who are part of this gospel community too. We have seen the names of the leading families, the elders, come together and sign a formal covenant with the Lord on how they will honor their privilege of living in this community. Considering we live in the New Testament era, there is a danger of not being able to relate to the text. For example, the church has not been called to live as a nation like Israel was. As Christians, we do not live in cities which are exclusively our own, and whenever people have attempted to do so, we have witnessed a disaster. Exceptions do exist, such as the, the, the Amish, but even then we will probably assume that they have missed the boat by forming such detached communities. There is a danger of assuming that we do not live together as formal nation or community, that we must live as free souls with a loose connection to each other via the Holy Spirit or some other means. 
You know, I kind of picture this whole idea as like, like you know, maybe like a, a football supporter. When you meet someone who is a, a, a fellow supporter of your team, you're, you're kind of like, yeah, hey, it's great. And, you know, you have this loose conversation, but you don't go and live in the same place. And you might have a drink with them, as it were. You might go to the match with them, but that's pretty much it. You don't really have any real connection. You don't really get to know who they are and, 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 and figure out, you know, well, you know, what's going in your home and how, how are you coping? And, and there is that point where we, we, we form groups and commitments very much loosely affiliated like that. So when we look through the book of Acts, though, we clearly see that Christians formed close communities. And I wish there was more time to do this, but again, practically we can't. Looking at the evidence of how we are actually supposed to be meaningful communities, meaningful members of them, and never we see them, you know, so as we look through the book of Acts and, and there are, they formed close communities, whenever there are breaks in the, in the bonds of that fellowship, the apostles bring strong condemnation. Look at 1 Corinthians that we, we went through, the, 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 the lengths and the pains that Paul goes through to try and bring the community back together. For example, we also see in Acts 4.32 that there was a close fellowship with believers that even included sharing financial resources. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You know, with the loss of families, as these Jews would have experienced um, in that first century. Because becoming a Christian was tantamount to being dead to your family. This type of help would have been detrimental to the community that, would have, that could have found many of its members destitute if, it, if such help was not provided. The fact that we do not necessarily have the same issues in our own culture does not negate the principle of the church having similar support for its members. As we progress through Acts, we see many more layers of structure placed around the ministry of the church. In Acts 6, we see deacons appointed to help distribute social and spiritual care. In Acts 11, we see Peter, the leading apostle, giving an account of his ministry to gen of Gentile believers to the church leaders. There we see accountability. Again, in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas given an account to Jerusalem for their ministry to the Gentile uh, believers, as well as raising their concerns about how the law of the covenant applied to them. Again, we see witnesses of that plurality of leadership. Strangely enough, we never see a trace of the Moses model in the New Testament, of one leader who hears from God and ultimately everybody disp you know, dispensates that to everybody else. Something we need to consider. In Acts 15, we also see Paul taking a letter that was now formed by that polarity of leadership, written by the apostles about decisions they have made, being brought to local churches so that they can follow their instructions. So that now turns into a letter, and, it, and it's universally applied. 
This is your expectations of your leaders, those people who have heard from God and now are sending you instructions. As this early history of the church unfolds, we see the church leaders taking more time and effort to bring structure and unity to the different church community, communities posited throughout the world. The pastoral letters, again, bring strong witness to the energy Paul poured into the organization of Christian communities he started and longed to see continue in the structures that he had put in place. You know, when you look at 1 Timothy and Titus, the instructions of keeping those elders and looking for new talent to come, to come into these places of people who were, had the right heart to lead. There have been numerous objections to some of the practices of the church over the centuries, and this is looking at the entirety of the church age. But the resolution of these issues has never been no structure at all. Even the Reformation, being one of the major restructures of the church, did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There was a desire, at least from, um, I know from Luther and Calvin, to see the church actually just change its practice. There never was a desire to form separate churches. But the Catholic Church decided not to change. And so therefore, creating separate churches became necessary for a church that wouldn't reform. The Jews of Nehemiah's day may have felt that the institution of the monarchy and the priesthood was defunct for having led them into the exile in the first place. However, they appear to have, no to have known that the answer was not a free and autonomous society. You know, some of the commentators, and this is for those of you who have been part of the uh, Bible study group, again, you're familiar with, with my take on some of the things that we've been looking at in relation to the book of Judges. And it's, you know, some of the, there are some commentators who look at the book of Judges and see, that, see a rhetorical tone in that recurring statement towards the end of the book rather than just a simple epitaph, you know. The statement that goes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there's, there, are, there are certain people who believe that, to some extent, it was speaking to these types of exiles. These exiles who, who believe that it was the monarchy, it was the, the priesthood that had failed them, and, 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 and ultimately, if society was a bit more freer and, 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 and every man had his own decisions, made his own decisions, that somehow that, that would have been a better society. And there is something of a tone here where the writer of Judges is saying, well, look, here is an example of a society that didn't have that kind of structure, and look what happened to it. The people who reach the top may be corrupt, but we fear no better if we are left to ourselves. So should we sign our name to agreements in church membership? Is that something that we, we, we really want to say has no bearing on our lives today? But 
You know, again, as I said, in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, Jesus says this, again, you have heard that it said of, it, it, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath either by heaven or, it's, or, or is, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of the of footstool, for it is it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simple, simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So some look at scriptures like this and and, and, and such as, as this and solidify their position of not formalizing their commitment to any Christian institution. As this cuts across a perceived freedom they believe the gospel brings. For example, the priesthood of believers, 1 Peter 2.9, surely means that the individual trumps any claims from the church community. Well, I'm my own priest, aren't I? I hear from God. What do I need an institution for? I've heard that argument, used that argument. So they resist an informal arrangement. And so often there's a, there's a, there's a somewhat innocent side where there's a, there's, we're, we're the family. Why do we need to formalize something that's informal? You can rely on me. But that's the problem is that as much as we are a family, the church kind of sits between that place of being between the state and being the family. In families, it might be assumed that certain people, as they would naturally take roles, and it, it doesn't make sense, as it were, write an agreement, so to speak, between family members that you shall do this, you shall take out the bins, um, I shall wash the dishes. <laughs> but though it does happen, all right? There, is a, there are those charters. Some families feel that this, you know, I've been taking for granted. I need to put this in a formal arrangement. And even then... So why in church will this also be pushed against? The reality is, is that, again, that hiding in, in, in the anonymity. Well, I'm just one of many members. Why, you know, when we make that formal commitment, we see all these responsibilities as our own and not merely as something somebody else can do. We don't, we don't rely on the anonymity of, 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 the, of the polarity to, to shield us from responsibility. You must note, though, what Jesus has actually said in, in Matthew 5. He does not say that the believer is free from making binding commitments. There is no mention there that, oh, actually, because you don't have to do, oh, you're free from any kind of commitment to any institution. Marriage and legal document commitments are just as binding on believers as they are on unbelievers. What Jesus was actually more concerned about was a generation of Jews who had come to think nothing of invoking the Lord's name to embolden their insincere commitments. And that's what he's really dealing with there. The fact that Exodus 27 was taken for granted. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So rather invoke God and, 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 and have him be part of your, your insincere commitments, just say yes. Just say no. 
Make it sincere. We should not shy away from making formal commitments in a church context when they are of great importance to the planning and organization of the community. The continuance and survival in the land depended on the commitment of the Jews to keep their word. For even though the grace of God was without end, nonetheless, his justice required obedience. So it is today that by the grace of God we continue as a local church, but our existence as an ecclesia of Lewisham is by no means ensured without the commitment of each member of its community. Without your time and your treasure and your talent, we will not be able to stabilize this local church's present or plan for its future. Nehemiah knew that God will be gracious to his people regardless that did not stop him from contributing to the Lord's people by building a wall that will help them to be established as the people of, as a city of God. You know, he sat there, we go back to, to chapter one, and he, I know God is faithful, but let me go and do that. Let me go and build that wall. Let me add that to the people. Let me do that for them. And he gets it done. The commitment of Christ has assured us that the church will continue until he returns. However, our opportunity is the privilege of being able to build something that will honor him and reflect the grace he has given us as well. And that's our gospel living. How do I now live? Let me commit to, not merely to the fact that I've been saved, but let me commit to the fact that I can now contribute to the well-being of God's people. And maybe we can say, just like at the end of chapter 10 here, we will not neglect the house of our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious. And Lord, we know, Father, as for all, Lord, we've seen about the nature of Israel and the, and, and the course of your church over the last 2,000 years, Lord, that your faithfulness means that we will continue regardless. But Lord, that doesn't speak for all the ministries that have fallen by the wayside. Sometimes through the sins of pastors, sometimes through the neglect of, of members, dear Lord God. There are many churches that were around, dear Lord Father, maybe even a few years ago. Maybe, Lord God, who knows, even as we come out of um, lockdown, dear Lord God, how many churches will have found, you know, that they are no longer able to survive. Lord, just looking at the state of play, Lord, and again, even... Um, seeing some of the things that happened with the Church of England of having to close so many churches um, that will never open again. Again, Lord, it, it, is, it gives us sincere pause for thought about what it is, Lord God, because as I said, Lord, the, our local fellowship is by no means ensured, even though your church will continue. It takes our commitment, our desire to double down and say, Lord, we will survive this. We will endure this. I will be there. I will not let the grace of God that has saved me 
be for naught. I will make my contribution because I've seen the faithfulness of God. So, Lord, help us, the Lord, to pull together. Help us, the Lord God, to, um, to be faithful, Lord, in the places that you've placed us, in the ministries that you've, you've given us to do, dear Lord God. Let our, our time, our treasure, our talent be to good use, dear Lord Father, for, you, for the purpose of your kingdom. Even as Nehemiah's talent and his treasure and his time was used for good measure, dear Lord God, to, to keep the people God's people, your people, safe. So it is there, Lord God. We look to ourselves and say, Lord, help us to likewise live out the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Let us live it well. Let us fight hard for the church in which he has died for. Let's live for it, dear Lord God. Let's even die for it if needs be. So have your way, Lord, in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.